Our reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 4. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him and Deborah also went with him. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, I had a friend who came to me, and he was going through just an incredibly difficult time with one of his teenage sons. Uh, His son was just making some really bad choices, some dangerous choices, and uh, my friend was just in incredible despair. Just didn't know what to do. No matter what he tried, his son just keeps seeming to walk that path that was going to bring his own destruction. And when he came to me, he told me that he had uh, just been struggling so much that week that he hadn't slept for days. And he said that every night he was just praying and praying, and each night his prayers got more desperate as he would see his son just continuing in this path. And then he told me that the night before he came to talk to me, He said, I was so desperate, I just didn't know what to do. So he said, I I took my Bible, and I laid my Bible on the ground, and then I stood on top of it, and I just screamed at God. He said, it was kind of that idea of standing on the Word of God. Somehow I thought, maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll finally do it. I'm going to stand on the Word of God. I'm going to scream at God. I'm going to tell him, you have to help. You have to change my son's heart. And then he came to me because he was at the point the next day where he just felt helpless, and he felt hopeless. When he came to me, it was really sort of a, I just give up. I've done everything I can do. I don't know what to do, and I just feel like God is silent before me. I just, I just give up. I just want to avoid my son. I want to get out of it. I want to run away. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. Much of my conversation with him that day was reminding him of a lot of things that I knew he already knew. It was reminding him of the fact that 
the God who is revealed in that Bible that he stood on top of that night, that that God is a God who loves his son, that that God is a God who loves his son in a way that he and I could only begin to imagine, that as much as he loved his son and ached for him, God loved him even more. I also wanted to remind him that day that, that God cared about him and cared about the pain that he was going through and the things that he was feeling, that the God revealed in that book absolutely deeply cared about him. And the God revealed in that book also understood because that was a God who had watched his own son suffer. Now, in his case, his son suffered for no fault of his own. But God understood what it was to be a father who watched his son suffer. He knew, he knew how hard that must have been. He spoke to a God who cared about his son, who cared about him, who cared about his pain, and he spoke to a God who understood. And, and what I encouraged him to do was to keep praying and to keep following his calling as a father towards his son. I told him, I don't, think you need to, I don't think you need to put your Bible on the ground and stand on it. I don't think you need to do that. I don't, I don't think you need some special trick or some special gimmick that's going to somehow force God to care or to pay attention or to act. Because I, th- I think God does. I think he absolutely cares. I think he absolutely cares about your son and what you're going through. And I think he wants you to just earnestly continue to pursue him in prayer and continue to obey him by being the father he calls you to be. That's, what, that's the best thing you can do. That's an important thing to do. It's how you can love your son really well. I, I tell that story because I think it's not that different than most of us. Most of us, when we face crisis, when we face those times when we really feel helpless to accomplish something we deeply long for, it is really tempting to look for some angle or some method or some formula or something that will force God to move in the way we want him to move, that will get him to come through for us in the way that we really want him to come through. Ultimately, we want the God that we're asking to do good towards us, to, to, we want to find some way to guarantee that that'll happen, right? Because a little bit, I don't really fully trust it unless I have some control over it. Now, in in this father's case, he was looking for any angle, any method, anything that could give him a little bit control over God's response. And I think you kind of see that same thing when you look at this story about Barak. Barak, in this case, is being called to do something that's going to require incredible faith, that's incredibly risky. And I think Barak is looking for something that says, okay, God, I'm going to believe the God I can't see and that I can't touch and that I can't hear. And I'm going to believe that he's going to accomplish this good end that he tells me he's going to. I, I want something that makes me feel a little bit of control of the outcome. If I'm going to risk following that calling and faith, I want a little bit of control at least. And I, and I think he looked for the best thing he could. He looked at Deborah. Deborah was a pretty good choice. If you wanted someone to kind of be your little magic charm that was going to give you some extra power... Deborah was a pretty good choice. In a time when you don't find a lot of good role models in the nation of Israel, Deborah seems to have been one of the few good role models. She seems to be somebody that had God's ear, that God was using her in some important ways. And so it's, God, you're 
going to tell me to do something, something pretty risky, something pretty big, and you're going to promise a big result. But I'd like a little bit of a guarantee. I'd like to know that a little bit of the control over that end is in my hands. Deborah seems to have your ear. And if, if I bring Deborah along, then maybe I control it a little more because I can see her and hear her and touch her. She's right here in front of me. I, I trust you, God, but a little more if I can bring Deborah along with me. Then I'll trust you just a little bit more. We're all kind of that way, I think. We, we want to trust, but man, that whole idea of no control at all, no power at all to guarantee how God will move or when he'll move, or that he just simply in the end will bring about the good he promises. That's a, that's a scary thing. That's the tough part of faith. Yet what's interesting, Deborah, this good role model, this person that he wanted to bring along, this person who seemed to have good relationship with God and was accomplishing good things for Israel, she's not the one later in Hebrews 11 who's lifted up for us as an example of faith. It's Barak who's lifted up as an example of faith. And you look Barak, why? Why him? Why, why is he our example that we're supposed to kind of be encouraged by and follow into this, into this thing called faith? Well, I want to take a little closer look at Barak this morning. I want to look back into this story that you heard read and, uh, and see what's Barak's faith about, what's going on with this guy. And I, I think what we'll find pretty clearly is that his faith is a faith that's mixed with some uncertainty. His faith is a faith faith that comes with uh, some fear and maybe a little bit of demand attached to it. So if you're going to look at any story in the book of Judges, you've got to know your ABCs, I've been told. And by that I mean there's this cycle in the book of Judges you just see again and again and again happening. It's sometimes been described as ABCDE. Uh, a, apostasy. So the people of Israel in some way turn away from God and abandon God, and they turn to foreign gods, to the gods of their neighbors around them, and oftentimes even of their enemies. And then at some point, B, bondage, God turns them over in a sense to those gods and to those people whose gods they've been worshiping, and those people become their oppressors. In a sense, God lets them taste what it is to be under their protection and their care apart from him, and it's not, never a very good thing. So he allows someone to become their oppressor. In this case, it was the Canaanites who became their oppressor. And then C, eventually, and usually takes a while, eventually they realize they really do need the one true God, and they turn back to him and cry out to him. So C, they cry out. D, as they cry out and repent, God sends a deliverer. God sends someone to deliver them from bondage, and he, through some deliverer, he, he frees them. And then E, ease returns to the land. Things get kind of easy again for a while. And we're right back to A again. And round and round we go in the book of Judges, again and again and again. Well, Deborah, during this period of 20 years, we're told. So this is the period that we're entering where they've been 20 years of cruel oppression under the Canaanites. Jabin is their king. So this has been a hard 20 years they're in. And somewhere in there, Deborah is raised up to be the leader over Israel. And again, seems like she's a pretty good leader. Seems like she justly is um, judging things there. She's leading them well. Seems like a godly woman doing good. We're also told she's a prophetess and God speaks through her. And God sends a message through her to Barak after this 20 years of bondage. And says to Barak, Barak, 
I want you to raise up 10,000 men, and you're to take these 10,000 men, primarily from these two tribes within Israel. You're to call them forward, and then I'm going to send you to Mount Tabor, and I'm going to send you into battle against Jabin's army, who's led by his commander, Sisera. And this is a mighty army. So remember, Israel's been under bondage for 20 years. Probably don't have the best weapons anymore. They've been under the power of another. Raise up 10,000 men, but they're probably kind of coming with the most uh, kind of primary of weapons that they have. And we're told that Sisera's army, it has 900 iron chariots. It is the, the top tech, military technology of the day. Iron chariots were known for being swift and powerful and just being able to devastate an enemy. They have 900 chariots, and if they have 900 iron chariots, you can bet they've got the best of every kind of weapon and probably have a pretty massive army. So he's being told that this is the the people that you're going to be sent with these 10,000 probably under-equipped soldiers to go fight. Barak's response to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And Deborah immediately responds back to him, Certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, some commentators you'll read will argue that this was not some kind of rebuke because of a lack of faith on um, Barak's case. They'll say that actually that could equally be translated, that phrase, but because of the course you are taking could just as reasonably be translated on the expedition you are undertaking. In other words, all that Deborah is saying back to him is, okay, but you know, here's the way the battle is going to go. She's just describing the way things are going to happen. Most commentators I read don't agree with that, and personally I don't agree with that, because Barak didn't just say, Deborah, I'd really like you to go with me. You seem to have God's ear. It'd be really nice if you're here with me. That wasn't all she said, right? If, she just, if he'd have just stopped there and said that to her, that would probably been okay. But he went on and said, but if you don't go, I'm not going. I will not follow God's command if you don't join me. And so he's being told, well, again, God's still going to use you. Even with this reluctant faith, even with this uncertainty and this demand, God's still going to use him. But he's told that, you know, the glory that would have been yours... Glory, it would have been yours if you would have joined me and you would have followed through on this is now not going to be. It's instead going to be given to a woman, and we later find out it's this woman, Yael, that she's going to be the one that glory is going to be given to of defeating the, the other general, the other commander of that army. In a sense, what God did was he took glory away from Barak that could have been his, and he gave it to another. Just like Barak had taken the glory away from God, and chose to give it to another. Because in some ways, the glory that was God's, that God was the one who was powerful and good and trustworthy and was going to bring victory, he, he shifted a little bit of that over to Deborah and really back into his hands a little bit. I want victory. God, I'm going to trust you for victory if Deborah goes because I feel a little safer and a little more in control if Deborah goes. So I trust you but a little more if I don't give up too much control. So he takes some glory away from God. He gives it to Deborah instead and holds on to a little of himself. 
And God says to him, then I'm going to take glory away from you, and I'm going to give it to another. Now, that can sound kind of juvenile, like, well, you did it to me, I'm going to do it to you. But I look at God's character throughout Scripture, and I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is what God so often does. That when we lack faith, I don't think it's a reason God doesn't still use us. When we are immature, when we struggle, I think God still uses us as immature, struggling people all the time. But God doesn't stop there. He always calls us to more. And I think here he's calling to Barak to more. He's, he's rebuking him, he is, because he's calling him to more. He wants to deepen his faith. And then he, he, through the process of this battle, I think grows his faith for Barak's sake, but also for the sake of those that watched him and would be impacted by him. God always is trying to take us deeper and in, increase and grow our faith, just as he did, I think, for Barak. Um, and you especially see that in the way that God accomplishes uh, this victory. So if you go on, they, Barak and Deborah and these 10,000 men that he raises up, they go on and they go up to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is really more a big hill uh, in Israel. Probably not, if you've just been in the northwest, you're probably not counting Mount Tabor a mountain. But it's a big hill. And they takes them all up on this really big hill. And this big hill at the base of it is the Kishon River. It flows in front of it, and then the other side, this huge valley and plain. And so they're up on this hill, and they're looking down, and what they're seeing is Sisera and his army. This massive, huge, dominant army with these incredible weapons before them. So imagine, you can see the whole thing laid out before you. And now you're called to take your army, under-equipped army, down that hill and attack that massive army. So in chapter 4 and verse 14, we read this. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? You kind of get this feeling he's still having to be prodded a little bit, right? Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Come on, you can do it. But what I love in Barak is he does it. He actually leads that army down that hill into superior forces. And then scripture goes on and it tells us, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. Well, we get a little more detail about that battle in the next chapter, in Judges chapter 5. Because this story is told twice. Once in Judges chapter 4, then it's told again in Judges chapter 5, but in poetic form. It's told in song, a song of Barak and Deborah. And here's what's said in Judges chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. And saying here, somehow the stars and the heavens fought against this enemy, this army, and brought defeat. And most believe it's because God sent rain. God sent a storm. From what I understand, the Kishon River in that area most of the time might best be described as a brook. It's a pretty slow-moving, small little river. But on this occasion, it seems that God sent rain. He sent a storm. Maybe during the night as they were preparing for battle the next day, but he sent a storm. And suddenly that calm little brook became a raging river that maybe overflowed its banks. And suddenly this valley now is a swamp of mud instead of a valley that these chariots could move so easily through. 
And what's believed happened was that God sent the rain, and suddenly these iron chariots that were the best possible weapon, that were known for their power and their just ability to devastate an enemy, suddenly they became big, heavy anchors that were stuck in mud, or they became iron coffins that were being turned over in the river. That suddenly this thing that gave them so much power became meaningless. And God then sent the army of Israel to defeat him. And what's also interesting about sending a storm is the Canaanites worshipped the god Baal. And Baal was a god of the storm, was a god of the rain. So even in how he defeated him, he shows, so, so Israel, you've turned to their gods? Canaanites, this is the god you worship? Here's who has power over the storms. Here's the true god who sent the rains, and the rains defeated this massive army. It was God who did it. And the writer of Judges chapter 4 leaves no question that it was God who did this. Well, Sisera, this commander, he manages to get away. So in the midst of the battle, somehow he scoots away, and he heads out probably the closest safe place he could find. And he heads out to the, the camp of this man named Heber, We're told Heber was a Kenite, and his clan was a nomadic clan living in tents, moving around. But Heber, we're told, had, it seemed like a pretty good relationship with Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. So Sisera heads out towards his camp, gets there, Heber's not there, but his wife comes out, his wife Yael. She comes out and she invites him into the tent. And we're told that she then, he's tired from the battle, he's been running, She gives him a rug and covers him up so that he can hide under the rug and he can rest. He asks for water, and we're told instead she brings him a bowl, and the best bowl she could, she brings him some milk and gives him milk. And the message here seems to be that she's doing all she can to make him feel safe and make him feel comfortable and let him go to sleep. And he did. And then she picks up a tent peg with one hand, and she picks up a big hammer with the other hand, And she drives that tent peg into one temple and out the other and into the ground. Now imagine if you're the children's Bible illustrator for that chapter. (laughs) you got to draw that picture. That one's a challenge. This little nomadic woman living in tents, and her culture probably just someone who was never thought of, she devastated, destroyed, killed that mighty commander Sisera. Um, God brought victory. He, he absolutely defeated that mighty army. In the end of chapter 4, we read, On that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. God did it. And if, if you have any question, if you think, no, that was really because of Deborah, and that was because of Barak, maybe he was a great commander, and that was because they had 10,000 people on their side, you have any question who was behind it and who made it happen? It happened through a rainstorm, and it happened through this, who Deborah would later describe as a tent-dwelling woman. That's how the victory came to be. It wasn't because of the might of the ones that God used or the messages God used. It was because of the might and the power and the goodness of the one behind those things. God did it, and God accomplished it. In the book of 2 Corinthians, I love where the Apostle Paul um, talks about how God goes about accomplishing things. Um, 2 Corinthians often said it seems like Paul's authority and his, his teaching, some of the things he taught have been being challenged by, by some other teachers. 
that they're beginning to question Paul in some ways and the things he's taught them. And then in chapter 4, it seems like Paul's even speaking style is being questioned now. Is he really that good of a speaker? Should we be listening to him? You know, is he the guy who's got the showy style and he's the smooth speaker? Does he have what it takes? Should we really follow Paul? And Paul responds by saying that his goal is simply to set forth the truth plainly. That's what he's here to do. He's not trying to be the best speaker. He just wants them to know the truth. And the reason Paul says he wants to do that is because he knows that's where the power is. The power isn't in the speaker. The power is in the message and the one who sent the message. That's where the real power lies, and Paul knows it, and that's what he's given his attention to. I want that message to be as clear as can be. I want out of the way of it because I want it to be as clear as it possibly can be. He later says, It was God who made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This message, the only reason we can know it and understand it, the only reason it has impact and power in our life is because of God, because of the way he displayed it in the face of Jesus Christ, because of the fact that he's the one who allows it to impact our hearts and to change our lives. He is the power behind that message, not the messenger. And then Paul goes on and says in that passage that we're most, most of us are familiar with, we have this treasure, and here he's talking about this gospel message, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That, that the messenger is just the jar. It's this jar of clay that you can dress it up, you can make it look good, it can be pretty, but tell you the truth, it doesn't matter how nice the jar is. What really matters is the treasure that's within that we get to carry. I've heard once what I think is a good definition of humility. Humility is not denying the power you have, but admitting that the power comes through you and not from you. You read it again. Humility is not denying the power you have, but admitting that the power comes through you and not from you. We have the privilege of serving an all-powerful God. And he wants us to know that he is the one that we can trust and depend upon. That if we're going to accomplish something that truly matters, if we're going to fulfill our calling, we're only going to do it because of faith in him and trusting him. It's not going to be because we got it all figured out or how great we are. Or we figured out the tricks. We got the right angles. We figured out the right formula. It's because of him. That's where the power rests, the truth rests. Many of us, like Barak, I think, feel inadequate sometimes to, to fulfill the things that God calls us to. We just don't feel like we have what it takes. I feel that every single day, uh, that the things I think God has called me to, God, why me? I sure don't have what it takes to do that. And sometimes if we are going to follow that calling, I also want to say, well, God, I don't have what it takes, and, I, and it's kind of scary and the results seem kind of uncertain, and you're calling me to it, but God, will it really produce anything good? Will good really come from it if I give in and follow this thing, if I submit to you? It's God, if, if, you, could even, if you could even just show me for sure how it's going to end, then maybe, God, I'd be willing to follow that calling, right? Because it may look bad now, but if, if you'll just reveal the end to me, then okay, I can walk in this and keep on doing it. Get, give me at least that, God. Um, the truth is that we are all called to do things we're inadequate to do. And the truth is we are all called through faith to risk doing things that we do not know the path ahead. 
We don't know all of it, at least, and we sure don't know the timing and all the results. And yet we're called again and again to do those things. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we are going to submit to our calling from God, whatever that calling is, faith has to be a part of it. It cannot be something that just depends upon us, that we're in total control of, that we are totally adequate for. If it's going to please God, whatever we choose to do in following him, faith has to be in the mix or it will not please God. And he goes on and says this, because anyone who who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If we're going to step out and please God and follow him, it's going to require us to risk things that we have to depend on him being the one who brings the rewards. We have to. We have to trust that ultimately he'll bring good out of it even when we don't see how good's going to come. It requires that. That's what pleases God. That's the kind of submitting to him that ultimately God says, that's real faith. That's good. That's what I want you to be. By calling, I want to say, I think sometimes we think of calling just as, uh, you know, like what happened with Barak. It's this remarkable, out of the ordinary, spectacular God somehow specially talked to me. I remember when I was a candidating different places uh, for positions in churches. One of the first questions everybody would ask me is, were you called to ministry? And my response, even here when I came here, uh, I think Dave McKay was on that search committee, even when I came here, someone asked me that, and I said, probably not by what you mean. Because if what you mean did I hear a special voice and something tell me I should be in youth ministry, which I was doing at the time, I haven't. I just haven't. But I would always go on and explain If what you mean, do I think God's given me some gifts and those gifts have been affirmed by others and I have a desire to live those gifts out in a certain way and I see needs within churches to use those gifts in that way and I think God calls me ultimately to carry the gospel to others, then yeah, I think I'm called to that. I said, but I'll really know it if you offer me the job (laughs) because that has to be part of that calling too, right? The the calling a lot of times is simply the thing that God tells us, yes, do that. Through his word, through sometimes the gifts he's given us, the opportunities he lays before us, um, the needs that are in front of us, and the fact that we could step in and meet them. Sometimes those are the ways, I think those are most often the ways that God calls us into his service, to serve him and to follow him. So by calling, I mean, yeah, those remarkable, spectacular, once-in-a-while things, But I think also all those callings that are asking of us faith. That if we're going to follow, it's going to require real faith. By that I mean things like our calling to be parents and how we're called to live out that calling as a parent. By that I mean our calling as spouses and how as followers of Christ we're called to live out that calling as spouses. Uh, By members of the church, by being here, by being followers of Christ, you're all called in some way to things towards one another in the church. The phrase one another in the New Testament appears over a hundred times in the New Testament. And when you start following that phrase through the New Testament, what you'll find in almost every case it's talking about how we're to deal with one another and treat one another. The sacrifices we're to make for one another. We are called to the church and to some pretty difficult things as a church. We are all called 
not just those of us who are getting paychecks. We are all called to the church and to the work of the church. You've been given gifts. You've been given opportunities. Every single one of you here is called to that work. That's your calling, just like it is mine. Maybe in a little different way. Maybe it'll look a little different, but it's your calling. We're called to things as employers and as employees. All of us as followers of Christ, there are things that we've been called to do through his word. And I want to say that that calling, whatever it looks like in all those different situations for you, it requires faith. You will be asked to step out and to do things that are beyond your ability, that you feel inadequate to do, and you will be called to do things that look like, man, that's a lot of sacrifice and I don't really see it going anywhere. That's costing me a lot and I don't see the reward at the end. And you're being called to do those things trusting that God is a God who's present and who wants to reward those who earnestly seek him. That's the God that you're called to follow. I think, I think most of the ways in which I respond to my calling most of the time requires a little bit of faith. Most things I'm called to do, yeah, it requires faith. It requires me kind of stepping out and taking risks. But every once in a while, you know, we get those things that it's like, no, that requires faith. God's calling me to that, and that requires incredible faith. And I just think, I think just like Barak, God always wants to deepen and grow our faith. He never wants us to become too comfortable that we've got it all figured out, and we're settled now, and we got this whole God thing together. It's like, no. Always want your faith to grow deeper. And the only way it's going to grow deeper is we're going to risk going beyond what feels safe, and we're going to get to see, just like Barak did, God come through. God, be the God he promises to be, and I think he'll reveal it to us again and again in ways that will surprise us. He wants our faith to grow. Many of you as parents are probably facing choices that to you feel like they're just impossible. I'm helpless. I don't have a lot of hope it's all going to work out. And God calls you to earnestly seek him to pray and to follow your calling, to be the parent he calls you to be, even though you aren't in total control of what happens with it. I talk to spouses all the time who are saying, I don't think God has somehow freed me from this marriage, but man, I don't know how to stay in it. I've sat with people before, and I think, I don't know how I'd stay in it. It is a hard calling. It is a calling that's going to require faith from you that is hard for me to even imagine. But if God calls you to it, then I think God wants to grow your faith in such a way that you'll be able to stay in it. I think God ultimately wants to reward you with good. Not always the good I imagine, but ultimately we serve a God who wants to reward those who earnestly seek him with good rewards because he is a good God. That's what faith asks of us. You find it in your jobs. You find it sometimes in the church, right? Sometimes service in the church just seems like it's just asked too much. It's just too hard. There are other places I can do this and the rewards are a lot more, they're quicker to come and they just seem more obvious, and I can get them. Sometimes serving here, it seems like the rewards are not coming fast. You know? God asks you to trust that if you do what he calls you to do, he will take care of the rewards. Leave those in his hand, just like Barak was asked to do. I think Barak, when he stood over uh, Yael, Yael standing there with that tent peg, well, tent peg wasn't her hand anymore, but the hammer. When she's standing there with her hammer... I imagine that Barak looked at her and he thought to himself, 
you know, I wasn't all I could have been. If I would have trusted God, I, I could have tasted even more of the rewards that come from faith in him. But, but I hope what also was going on in Barak, what I imagine, was that Barak was also saying, I am now so much more than I would, would have been had I not followed God into this battle. Because I've seen God's goodness and I've seen God's power. He has rewarded me by seeing that he is a God well worth trusting. And I'll bet his faith was deeper. The slave ship captain who became a preacher, John Newton, once wrote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Love that, that quote. God wants us in our immaturity and our reluctance and our questioning to step out with the faith that we can. Small sometimes as it is and immature as it is, um, as much as we sometimes attach unreasonable conditions to it, to step out it as much as you can to take a risk. And I think our gracious God will continue to work in us to deepen our faith and to grow it and to make it even bigger. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you do call us to that which is beyond us. But even more than that, Father, we thank you that, um, that we can do that but we have, because we have a God who is present, who absolutely does care, who hears our prayers. Father, who uses imperfect people like us to do his good will. That we serve a God who is good, a God who is faithful, a God who is powerful, and a God who is with us. Father, I pray you'd remind us in those moments when faith seems to ask too much of us, when faith seems to call us into into a path that, Father, just feels hopeless, that we feel helpless. I pray, Father, in those moments we would remember that the God we serve, that God, with him nothing is impossible. In your blessed name, amen.